Job chapter 33 and beginning in verse 1. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For man may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So Elihu is now going to take up this inspired discourse and speak to Job and his three friends and all who were gathered there that day. He says to Job in verse 6, Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. He wanted to faithfully represent Job to everyone present and he even wanted to represent Job to God if he could. He too wanted to find a righteous answer as to why these awful things had happened to Job. He believed that Job was a righteous man. In order to be faithful in his speech, he rightly understood that he must first and foremostly defend God himself. And that he was very eager to do. And so what I want to do this afternoon in this message is, first of all, relate to you Elihu's defense of himself as becoming Job's spokesman, verses 1 to 7. And second, I want to relate to you Elihu's defense of God for his not answering Job thus far, verses 8 to 13. And third, when we gather around the table, I want to relate to you Elihu's defense of some of God's purposes in his permitting a trial like this to come upon Job, verses 14 to 18. By means of relating Elihu's defense of God, we will come to better understand God's reason for sending Christ into the world to save sinners. First of all, I want to relate to you Elihu's defense of God's reasons for not answering Job thus far. Elihu says, but please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth, my words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
If you can answer me, set your words in order before me, take your stand. Truly, I am your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of the clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. So having heard Job's three friends' speeches to Job, Elihu comes forth with some very amazing words here. He says, I'm going to open my mouth and the words which will come out will come from my upright heart. He says, my lips will utter pure knowledge. We might well question, how can Elihu say such a thing? How, could, how can he ensure that all of his words would come forth from an upright heart? Well, I believe that he could say this because he knew himself to be standing in the presence of the Almighty. He had the fear of the Lord, which would govern his tongue. He would be sincere. He would be loving. He would be gentle to Job with his speech. And the things that he would say would be taught to him by God himself. Even as a prophet would speak the very words of God inspired directly by the Holy Spirit, even so this man Elihu knew himself to be in that role and filled even by that same Spirit, the Spirit of God has made me, he says, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He says, I too, like you, Job, have been formed out of clay. I am just a man like you. You don't need to be afraid of me. My hand will not be heavy on you. We are on the same level, man to man. We will stand toe to toe. You have taken your stand for establishing your own righteousness, but I am here to help you, Job, not to condemn you. Now, I want you to see how Christ-like this approach was following all of these severe discourses of Job's friends against him. Elihu is assuring Job, I will not come after you with my suspicions. I will let you answer me in all that I will say to you. So Elihu is telling Job that he's not come into this conversation to condemn Job, but in order that through his words to him, he might be saved from himself and have better views of God. Now, my brethren, this is how you and I should think in regard to speaking to others. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the object of our speaking with someone who is going through a trial, a great trial, should not be to condemn them, but to be of help to them if we can. How can we do this? We can do it by helping them on to a better view of themselves and a better view of God. I fear that too often a person going through a great trial does not see himself rightly. And it's because he does not see himself rightly that he does not see God rightly either. What do I mean? I mean that whenever we go through a great trial, we think to ourselves, what did I do to deserve this? Especially if we have thought and acted as a righteous person walking in the fear of God and in the love of people around us. We can't think that we have done anything to deserve what we're going through. 
And then sometimes it may just be that if the trial does not go away, we steadfastly defend ourselves before other people. But we question God. And we think what he has ordained in our case is not right. And this was exactly what happened to Job. And this is why it was so necessary that Elihu would come to his rescue at this point. This is something that is so important for us to see, that Elihu was full of the Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he could have great confidence that his words would be right and true and faithful to God. But he would also be gentle, even though he would have to speak most definitely and assertively. I found the words of the commentator in the old Schofield Reference Bible to be quite disturbing and disconcerting when he spoke about Elihu's ministry to Job. He said, Elihu's account of God is noble and true, and it is noteworthy that at the last, Jehovah does not class him, that is Elihu, with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but he is still a dogmatist and his eloquent discourse is marred by self-assertiveness. So this man, this commentator, is talking about Elihu, okay? He's saying his eloquent discourse is marred by self-assertiveness. Jehovah's judgment of Elihu is that, this is still quoting from that man, Jehovah's judgment of Elihu is that he darkened counsel by words, chapter 38, verse 2, the very charge that Elihu had brought against Job verse, uh, in chapter 34, verse 35 and 35, 16. Furthermore, he says, the discourse of Jehovah, that is of God, is wholly free from the accusations of Job with which even Elihu's lofty discourse abounds. So, when I read this, I couldn't believe that a man who was given the opportunity to be a commentator of the Schofield Reference Bible could make these statements. I wrote in ink at the bottom of the page, these statements are not true. God never reproves Elihu. His discourse is not marred by self-assertiveness, but he is speaking faithfully on God's behalf. So in chapter 38, verse 2, God says that it was Job who darkened counsel by words without knowledge, not Elihu. Now, there's something that you and I need to learn here. Not everyone who speaks confidently is speaking self-assertively. That's what we need to see. Indeed, when a person is speaking by the Spirit of God, as Elihu was, the Spirit was guiding him skillfully with his eye upon him. He was not like a horse or a mule who needed bit and bridle to hold him in check, like it says in Psalm 32, verse 9. No, when God is with your spirit, he will be instructing you and teaching you in the way that you should go. And he will be leading you in the way that you should speak. His spirit will be with your spirit. And then Job did not once interrupt Elihu in his speech to him, even though Elihu will strongly reprove him several times in this discourse, yet Job will receive it. Why? because the words were being brought to him in the right way. They were brought to him out of a real love for Job, out of a real concern to see him delivered 
from his own wrong conclusions about God and even his wrong conclusions about himself. God had reasons for not answering Job to this point in his trial. But God's way, I want you to see this, is often to wait and to watch and to think upon what we will say and what we will do when we are going through our trial. In the various situations, difficult situations of our life, he will do this before he gives us an answer. He wants to prove our righteousness as real. He wants to prove our faith and trust in him is real. That our faith is firmly fixed upon him, especially when things are not going well for us. Doesn't he know all about our faith already? Yes, but he's waiting to answer so that his instruction to us is established so that we know that he is wise and holy and faithful and true. The thought, this thought would be introduced by Elihu to everyone there. Now, second, I want to relate to you Elihu's defense of God for God's not answering Job thus far. Elihu says in verses 8 to 17, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look, Job, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. So we see here for the first time in this book, a righteous reproof is given to Job. Elihu correctly relates that Job had spoken of himself as pure and without transgression. He had spoken of himself as innocent and as having no iniquity. And then he then says that Job went on to contend with God. Because God had not given him an answer as to why all of these awful things had taken place in his life. And beyond all this, Elihu says that he had accused God unjustly of seeking occasion against him, counting him as his enemy, and putting his feet in the stocks, spiritually speaking. The God was supposedly watching all of his paths, not to do him good, but to do him evil, Elihu rightly says that in this, Job was not righteous. So we need to understand something from this, my brethren, and that is that when trials come, that it is true that God ordains them. Now, I hope that you understand this. It's God's purpose, his, his deliberate part of his purposed plan for your life, that you will go through trials to your faith and your experience in many points in your Christian life. God ordains these things for our good. He does not ordain them for our destruction or for our overthrow, the overthrow, overthrowing of our faith. Rather, his purpose is to establish our faith and to establish us in righteousness. His purpose is to establish us in his righteousness, in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important thing for you to see and to understand here this afternoon. 
God's purpose is to establish your righteousness, my righteousness, as much as each of us is personally righteous. But it's in Christ's righteousness. That is, our righteousness is in Christ's righteousness so that we will truly glorify God and it won't be just us defending our own righteousness as Job was in this whole time period of his trial. He does indeed, as you, you know, cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. In this holy way, even in our trials, we are brought to see good things in and through them, even though it's so terrible at times when we are passing through the trial. But Job, Job didn't know that this was for his good at this point. He knew that God was wise and holy in all of his ways. Job started out well in receiving evil from the Lord, as well as good. He said, he said that he was going to do that. But as time went on, God did not answer him. He did not give an answer to him to explain to him what was going on. And Job believed that God was not being righteous and is not giving him an explanation in not rewarding him according to his works, which had been righteous and good. He objected to God's being silent towards him, in other words. And since God was silent to him, he therefore wrongly concluded that God had become his enemy. So it was a terrible failure on Job's part, even though I believe that we can sympathize with him in his reactions. We cannot justify them in him, his reactions, or in ourselves, for that matter. It was unrighteous for Job to have said the things that he did about God. And what we need to learn, as Job needed to learn here, is that God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He withholds the explanation for why the bad things happen to us who are good people until he is sure that our faith is firmly fixed upon him and will not waver. Do you see that? That's what he's looking for from you in the trial, dear Christian. He's looking that your faith will be fixed on him and it will not waver or turn away from him, no matter what happens. And this is always the hardest part of the trial, a silent God. But while he is silent, we should be justifying him and declaring his faithfulness in ordaining and permitting all the difficult and evil things which come to us. For in them, we will learn Christ. I want you to see at this point in this message how our Lord Jesus Christ undertook to justify his God and Father on Job's behalf and on our behalf when he went to the cross. And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 22. And I want to look at verses 1 to 5. Psalm 22, 
verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed, but I am a worm and no man. Now these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he was going to the cross and on the cross. No doubt the very thoughts that went through the mind of our Lord Jesus prophetically penned by King David a thousand years before. Well, what can we say about that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the same words here spoken by Christ, could have been spoken by Job. That's how Job felt, as though God had forsaken him. But you see, Job's words had not been perfect. He had not been justifying God during the trial. He had been trying too hard to justify himself. And God knew this. And Elihu knew this. And even Job's three friends knew this. And the reasons that God had been silent thus far in this trial in regard to his speaking to Job about why he would put him through such a trial was that God knew that he had to deal with the accusations of Satan concerning Job. He knew that he must prove to both Satan and to all men who were looking on that Job was a righteous man, one who feared him and was turning away from evil. This he was most certainly going to do in Job's case. And this is what he most certainly is going to do with each one of us who believes in him for salvation. Sometimes we as believers do not know just how much we need to be saved and how very much we need to justify God in our trials. The Lord Jesus, who was perfect, pure, and holy, knew the reality of God's having forsaken him at the cross. He knew the reality of crying out to God, his Father, in prayer to deliver him. But it appeared in his experience that God was not hearing and was silent. But verse 3 tells us that in all that time on the cross that the Lord Jesus was justifying God. Do you see it? That is the point that I'm trying to make to you here this afternoon. Verse um, 3 tells us that he was doing that very thing. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Verse 6, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So again, Job could have said these very words 
in his trial. And he did speak similar words. But the difference between our Lord and Job was that Job tried too hard to justify himself instead of God in his trial. And my brethren, this is the very reason that he was failing and even sinning against God. He needed God to answer him and to defend him and to deliver him from this trial. But he also needed to learn more about his Savior, Redeemer, and friend, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the process. And this is why God had him go through this trial. Can you see that? If Job were standing here today, he would be able to confess that very thing. His trial was so that he might better understand Christ, his Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. But he didn't know what Christ would have to go through, at least so much as we do here this afternoon. He needed to understand his own need of Christ to be his Redeemer someday in the future, according to God's promise. To go to the cross on his behalf, that's what the Lord Jesus had to do. The Lord Jesus had to go to the cross for Job, even though he was a righteous man who feared God and was turning away from evil. Jesus still had to go to the cross for him. Probably the best man, none like him on all the earth, God said. But still, he needed Christ. So only Christ could save Job from his sins, and only Christ could deliver Job from the snare of the trapper. That is the devil. Only God through Christ could justify Job and declare him righteous in his sight and vindicate his reputation in the sight of men. And that's what you and I, we all need to learn. All of this rests with God, not with us. Even though we want to resolve our own personal situation, we want God to answer us and give us reasons. But yet, what is it that he wants us to learn? What is it that he wants to teach us? See, that's the thing I think that you and I need to ask when we're going through a trial. Lord, what is it that you want me to learn? What is it that you want to teach me in this trial that I'm going through? I want to relate to you Elihu's defense of some of God's purposes in permitting a trial like this to come upon Job, verses 14 to 18. Say, for God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream and a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So I want you to remember with me as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that there are many ways that God ministers to us when we are unaware of it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But even when you think you're by yourself, God is still there with you. He's always there with you. 
And yet I think we forget. And we also forget then that there are many ways that God ministers to us spiritually in our soul and spirit. Because when he says he seals their instruction, that's what it means. In other words, God wants to instruct us concerning things related to our faith and our walk with him. And he will seal those to us, but we may not even realize that it's taking place. I think that's hard. Job didn't understand it, certainly. And I think that you and I are often in that same position where we think that there's nobody who knows and nobody who cares and and people don't understand me. They don't understand what I'm going through. They can't understand the trials that I face. But you should know that Christ does. God does. And he's sealing instruction to you, to your heart, for your good. In every situation that you're in, no matter how difficult it is, that's what he's doing. And will you not remember as you partake the supper that he, is, he will never leave you nor forsake you? And you ought to take comfort, great comfort, in that, that even if you think you're alone, you are not. I will never, 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 never leave you, nor forsake you, he says in Hebrews. And I think in the original, it can be proved that it's the emphatic is over and over and over. I will never, never, never leave you, nor forsake you. So I want you to remember, as we partake the supper, there are many ways that God ministers to us when we're unaware of it. And he can speak to our hearts and minds in our sleep if he wants to, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, he opens the ears of man and seals their instruction. Wow, I think that is really good. So he can open our spiritual ears to hear and seals his instruction to us. And what is it that he desires to say? Well, he wants us to know that it is he who turns us back from sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, which is why we are partaking of the supper this afternoon. Because it's he who works in such a way in our lives, it says here, that he conceals pride from us. Now, that's a good work, isn't it? If pride is, is sin and he conceals pride from us, it must mean that he's concealing something from us concerning our evaluation of ourselves. <laughs> I think that is really good. You know, so what, what we need to remember here is when we partake the supper, if we have certain sins that we grapple with in our heart and mind, which each of us does, will you not remember that God is able through this means, even that we're using here this afternoon, of partaking the Lord's Supper, that he can conceal pride from you? And you think, you think more highly of yourself than you ought, which is what pride is. But God can conceal pride from you so that you look at yourself and you say, no, no, I'm not as great as I once thought I was. I'm not as strong or as wise as I once thought I was. I have a lot to learn, God. And see, when God sees that, see, he thinks you're making progress. I think, I think it's very precious, really. 
Because what does it do? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when he sees that you think, well, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I can't, I can't do what you want me to do. God says, yes, by my grace, you can. But it won't contribute anything to your pride. <laughs> you, you won't think any more highly of yourself than you ought to think when you're humble. And God has you in the perfect place for him to minister to you when you see that. And you see that truth and you partake of these elements while well, you see what it caused Christ. That he had to die for you to get this far in the Christian life. I, th I don't think we think of it that way. We know that Christ died for our sins and, that, and we're forgiven of all of our sins. But I don't think that we sometimes think about that he died for, the, for us to be able to make progress in our faith and progress in holiness and progress in righteousness in, in a good way, you know, so that we are truly useful to him and fruitful to him in service to him. So that's why it's worded that way. It says here that um, he's the one who keeps back our soul from the pit of hell. Now we know that a Christian can never perish. A true Christian can never perish. It says in John chapter 10. But sometimes Christians do perish, don't they? They even perish by the sword. The brother James, uh, the brother of John was killed with the sword in the book of Acts. But he didn't perish, did he? No, he went immediately to heaven and beheld the face of the Savior. But we also need to know and to remember that it's only by God's saving power, by his saving strength, that we are kept from eternal destruction. It's true that we are safe in the arms of Jesus. But I don't think that we think sometimes that the Lord has to watch over us all the way to heaven. <laughs> but he does. He's got to watch over us all the way to heaven. And uh, that's what he does here. When we partake of these elements, we, we see him for what he did for us and who he is to us, what it means, what it meant for him to pay the price for our sins and also then to purchase grace for us so that we would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mighty power. And, and thus we are kept from the snare of the trapper, from being overthrown by Satan utterly. Because look how far Satan got with Job. I mean, Satan got a long ways with Job. He got a lot of permission from God to be able to afflict Job in the way that he did. And yet God brought Job threw it, and he would triumph over the devil in it. And he would live. I, we'll get to the end of the book, and we'll see this, but I think he lived like 140, 45 years longer after this. Had, uh, what was it? Seven sons and three daughters. He had 10 more children, at least 10. Wow. Had his health restored. Can you imagine sitting there like he was during that whole time? scratching himself with the potsherd, covered with boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, and then he's, and then he's expected to answer all these guys who are telling him he's a sinner? I mean, it was a perfectly horrid trial. But what I'm trying to show you here is that 
Christ's watch care over us, his saving power, his saving strength, that's what keeps us from eternal destruction. Not just the initial salvation, but all the way through our life, all the way till we see him face to face. So we need to remember that he's our faithful covenant-keeping God. And you can turn over to Psalm 32 if you want to here. Some neat verses. I've already quoted from Psalm 32 a little bit. He says, I will instruct you and teach you. This is verse 8 and following. In the way that you should go, I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. So that's the appropriate response for the Christian when they're going through trials. You, you see God as your hiding place. But to be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. You see God as your hiding place. You know that he'll preserve you from trouble. He shall surround you with songs of deliverance. Not right away in your trials, but in his good time, his good way. He's going to teach you as you go. So we need to remember Jesus now, crucified, risen from the dead. And it's he who is teaching us and transforming us to be more like him. He's going to bring us through and out of all of our trials. And then we'll see him face to face.